Several of you are familiar with 2 Corinthians 5.17. If, if anyone is a new, uh, in Christ, they are new creation. Or literally it just says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. That's one way the Bible talks about what it means to live now, presently, as members of heaven. So new creation has happened, old creation is still happening. So there's this overlap of the ages. One, another way we often talk about it is the city of God and the city of man. Another way the scripture talks about it is with the kingdom of God. It's sort of like already the kingdom has come, but not yet has it come fully. Already not yet. We've been looking for the last few weeks at another picture the Bible gives to help us understand that, and that is living in exile, that as the people of God, we are not home yet. We are, we are kind of where we, our home will be. This earth is our final home, but it's not in the state it will be, right? Things will be renewed and restored beyond our ability to imagine, so we're not home yet, but in Christ already, if you're in Christ by faith because of his life, death, and resurrection, we are already united to our home, so in Christ we are at home in exile. And to get at that understanding more fully, we've been looking at some of the narrative portions of the book of Daniel, which is a picture of God working with his people when they're in physical exile in the 6th century BC. So we're looking at Daniel chapter 5 this morning. In the 1970s and early 1980s, the name Jim Fix was a household name in many homes. Jim Fix was a brilliant scholar at Oberlin College and then a graduated. He was a member of Mensa, this high IQ group, wrote a couple of books. One was called Games for the Super Intelligent. The next one was called More Games for the Super Intelligent. So he was super intelligent, but not super creative in titling his books. But uh, at 35, though, he found himself to be extremely overweight at 215 pounds. Those are his words about 215, not mine. I'm just saying that. he, He found himself extremely overweight and out of shape, and full of bad habits. So he began to run. He just began to run. And over the next 10 years, dropped 60 pounds, and then wrote a book called The Complete Book of Running, which became a runaway bestseller. Several months on the New York Times bestseller list, sold sold millions of copies. And so then he became a regular fixture in in the late 70s and early 80s on talk shows, going around, talking about the life-extending, health-expanding benefits of running. He was kind of one of America's trusted voices on health. He was fit, smart, popular, and now wealthy because he had a couple best-selling books. And on July 20th, 1984, at 50 years old, the height of health, Jim Fix went out for a jog and dropped dead of a heart attack. Atherosclerosis, one of his coronary arteries was blocked 95%, another one 85%, and a third 70%. So what looked healthy and invincible and to be desired was actually underneath incredibly fragile and had been for some time. But because of the external appearance of strength and health, it went unexamined and unknown until it was, that fragility was revealed to Jim Fix and everybody else on a very tragic afternoon in Vermont. We are looking today at Babylon, the country and the city of Babylon in the book of Daniel. And if you remember from our study in Revelation last year, Revelation 18 and 19, 
invites us to understand Babylon as sort of a stand-in, when we think of Babylon, a stand-in for all types of human culture and worldly power and power of empire. And so worldly power, empire, culture, Mike just prayed about this. Uh, Some of those are great and productive and do much good. We want to recognize that. God has put these in place, but they become corrupted. Some of them seem permanently enduring and very resilient. But one thing Scripture would have us know about worldly power, empire, human culture, and to be completely sober about is whatever else they may be, they are also incredibly fragile. And we are invited to see empire through those lenses of its own fragility. And we ought not treat them as if they are permanently enduring as if they are the final arbiter of what's good and true or the final authority to which we submit our lives and ourself. Though we do have a calling to faithful, loving service in the midst of all that human culture, and those things are kind of bring us into some tension sometimes. What does it look like to live in the already and not yet or to live as exiles who are at home trying to faithfully serve a culture that brings you into tension with it because of its own pride or its own fragility. It's challenging. I know that. There's a a social commentator named Aaron Wren, who's actually from Indy, and I think he lives back in Indianapolis again. Uh, He he has a taxonomy, a historical taxonomy for the, the last 50 years or so of the way the culture relates to Christianity. And he calls it moving from the positive world to the neutral world to what he calls now the negative world. And that, so he's trying to give generalities of all North America. It's kind of, you know, it's hard, and we live in the Midwest. And so like, but I think there's, there's some general wisdom to what he says here. He's, and he kind of dates it like before 1994, uh, for some of you need to be reminded, there was a before 1994 um, when some of us were in college even. He calls that the positive world. Now, maybe not on campus if you were there, but in general in our culture. The positive world was when society retained a mostly positive view of Christianity and thus being an upstanding member of a faith community brought social benefits and Christian moral norms pervaded society. Again, not on campus was my experience, but in general, he's like, say before the early 1990s, that was the case in North America. And then from 1994 to maybe 2014, that 20-year period, he calls the, the neutral world when society took a neutral stance toward Christianity, now we're just talking about North American culture here, neither privileging nor disfavoring the faith, one could be religious or not without losing social status, and Christian moral norms were a, had a residual effect on many things. And then he says, you know, about 2014, again, I don't know if this is exact, but something has changed, I know that, even since we planted New City many years ago. Even since you, you guys who have young children now are raising your kids in a different environment than we raised our young children just, you know, 15 years ago. It's, it's, it is a different day. Wren says, he calls this the negative world, describes the present state of society and its negative view of Christianity. To be a traditional Christian is detrimental, not beneficial to your status often. Christian morality is seen as harmful repressive, and threatening to the public good. Now, not all the time, but I think he's on to something. And I think that what we've seen, I've seen the last 10 years, is like Christians feel this, and sometimes they will get fearful, fearful of that public opinion, 
and uh, will respond to that fear by simply adopting views that are more acceptable. We call that, like, this happens in progressive Christianity. Just like, it's too much pressure. Like, well, we'll just adjust the historical Christian teaching as if it was always wrong or something like that. I think another group, and we, we probably have both have these tendencies in us, and even in this congregation, another group will grow hostile instead of fearful and sort of double down on the culture warring and they're trying to crush the competition or whatever. Um, and I understand why both of those moves are made. I totally understand. There's a lot of pressure. But I don't think what we're called to is either fearfulness or hostility, but rather a wisdom. Uh, And to see from the Lord's perspective what is happening. And one of the things that is happening is that there is a fragility of our culture. And that is exposed in Daniel 5 as well. Even among its accomplishment and creativity and apparent strength, there is a fragility to worldly power. So... What we're going after today is seeing this, that in exile, God strengthens his people for a sober faithfulness by revealing the fragility of worldly powers. In exile, friends, in your life now, God strengthens you for a sober faithfulness by revealing the fragility of worldly powers. So here's a situation, if you're tracking through us with, with us through Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar has died. There's a power struggle for a few years. And a man named Belshazzar, that's how we're going to say it. It's an air, it's a, you know, I don't know how to say it originally. Belshazzar, that'll, that'll work for us, is in charge now. Not to be confused, and it is confusing, with Daniel's Babylonian name, which is Belteshazzar. Belshazzar, King Belshazzar is in charge. This is different people, right? Uh, and the first thing we're going to see here is that worldly power is marked by the fragility of a form of foolishness that keeps showing up. Daniel 5, here we go. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So before we jump in there, historical note, Belshazzar's interesting. For years and years, this passage was used by Bible critics to say, see, the Bible just got it wrong again. So with critics, the scripture's, guilty until proven innocent. And um, there were several well-known critical books written about the fact that we know from historians writing 200 years after that a man named Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. There's no mention of a guy named Belshazzar. So this is obviously a place where the scripture just made it up. They got it wrong. Scripture makes up stuff. It's guilty, right? So we we know that uh, the Greek historians didn't talk about a man named Belshazzar, only uh, Nabonidus. So Critical scholars for centuries believe this is just a place people made it up. Some made it up. Until the end of the 19th century where archaeologists digging around in modern-day Babylon find what's called the Nabonidus uh, Pillar of Ur and the Nabonidus Chronicles, which mentions, lo and behold, a man named Belshazzar, who is Nabonidus' son, who was known, named as the co-regent by Nabonidus, the co-king, 
and then left in charge in Babylon when Nabonidus went to another city for the last 10 years of his life for religious reasons. He was an absentee king. He named his son Belshazzar king in his place. So, and when it mentions Nebuchadnezzar, his father there, this is just like we would say George Washington is the father of the country. It's sort of like a forefather, not literal father. So, uh, I would just say that to remind you that while things like archaeology can't prove Scripture is true, that's not the nature of archaeology. As things go on, what gets uncovered is a lot of confirmation, right? Just, just, that's the nature of archaeology. Just over and over, keeps uncovering, oh, I guess Belshazzar is real. Oh, I guess David is a real person. Oh, I guess Solomon was real, right? So you can trust your text, right? The things just keep getting uncovered. All right. This is an obscenely over-the-top party. A thousand officials and wives and concubines. So like the wives and the girlfriends are there. There's no restraint here whatsoever. That's not normal. Belshazzar, it says he drinks wine in front of the people. So there's this saying something like he's some champion of drinking wine or he's leading the celebration. This is about him and his empire and his arrogance. And uh, when he, get, he begins to get liquored up, it says he tasted the wine, but that's a word it means for judge. So it's kind of like he drank enough wine to say, yeah, this is pretty good stuff. Right? So he gets a little bit free in his folly and says, let's do this. I know that Nebuchadnezzar, he sacked the temple in Jerusalem in 586 B.C., 47 years earlier, and he brought in all the, brought these utensils that they used to use for holy purposes, all these goblets and everything. They would pour out the drink offerings. Let's get them out. They must have been stored in a museum somewhere. Nebuchadnezzar was a little bit religious, had a, had a deference for the God of the Hebrews. Let, let's get them out of storage. Let's bring them out and drink wine out of them. All right, let's do that. It is a, uh, it is a, kind of thumbing the nose at the God of the Hebrews. He's mocking God, probably because he knows the story of Nebuchadnezzar and how Nebuchadnezzar has fealty for this God named Yahweh. He's mocking God. So the first foolishness we see there is the arrogance of mocking God by trying to use holy things for your own purpose. Now, part of me wants to point out, and this is where I step aside and just say, it is interesting to me how I don't know, let's say in our country, we have presidents. What's he going to say about the president? Like, this is my attempt to alienate everybody at one time. Uh, We have presidents who have a life that does not reflect following Jesus at all. (laughs) Or presidents whose policies completely mock what the Scripture says, who are willing to hold up Bibles to leverage the base or trot out religious experts to leverage the base. I just, (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar, these holy things are not to leverage your pride. And I want to say, presidents, these holy things are not to leverage your power. It's doing the same thing. Maybe it doesn't seem as egregious to you, but we're in it. It's hard for us to see. That's not what the scripture's for. It's not what pastors are for. Even if they're willing to do it, that's not what they're for. That's a foolishness. That's a fragility, okay? The second sign of folly here is not, we don't know until the end of the passage. It's taking place in the capital city of Babylon, and we find out at the end that the Medo-Persian army is at the gate. They are surrounding the city. 
The Greek historian Xenophon says that Babylon at the time was an incredibly fortified city. It had high walls, towers. It wasn't penetrable, and it had provisions laid up for months, maybe even years. So they believed probably they could withstand a siege. Eventually, the Persians, it's the Medes and the Persians together, basically the tribes in modern-day Iran, coming down to modern-day Iraq, are surrounding them and said, they're going to go home eventually because we have food to outlast them, and they're in the desert. We are going to be fine. So they are partying when they should be preparing and facing the difficulty at hand, but they're arrogant. They think they're sustaining themselves, and they're in great shape. They're congratulating themselves about their own existence, and that very thing is actually putting their existence in danger. And they're doing this while mocking God. So we have hubris, hey, we're strong, and a sort of uh, denial. Things are going to continue as is. We're good. We're strong. We have a good trajectory going on here. Now, I don't know if they're really that different. This is like a big blown-up version of what's going on in my house right now, in my own heart. We have another kid going off to college. It means it's time to fill out FAFSA. The federal student aid, free application for federal student aid. It's a free application, but it costs you your soul to do it, right? It's so much work. And every time I think of the FAFSA, I think we should do it. And then I think, is there a college basketball game on? I want to do something else instead of actually deal with what's in front of me. And you know what? It's college basketball season. So there's always something to do. You know, and we use entertainment to distract ourselves often or deny what's right in front of us. We distract ourselves from what's important. It's one thing if it's FAFSA. It's another thing if it's like an important conversation you need to have with your spouse about something we've been denying or ignoring. It's another thing if it's like, is there some sin getting a grip on me that I need to think about and confess, but no, I'm just going to distract myself from it. Uh, it's, a, it's another thing if we're just avoiding looking our, at our budget, our family budget. Are you over budget? You don't know why, and you know you should sit down, but like, I'm, you know, let's go out and eat instead. That would be more fun. We know what's going on here. Uh, here's the good news. Jesus is with us. We don't actually have to avoid what's right in front of us. He meets it with us. If anyone is, Christ, is in Christ, he is new creation, and Jesus is with you. Anyway, Belshazzar does not have that. Verse 5, immediately, this is in this drunken, orgiistic, arrogant party. Immediately, verse 5, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers to interpret it. So he sees this and he kind of like freaks out. So in this big celebration to their own control of everything, we're going to be fine. Here's a vision, here's a picture that says you're not in control of anything. There's something you don't know is happening. This hand is writing on the wall. This is where the phrase, the writing on the wall, comes from, by the way. Um, And I don't know why it's a hand. It's a weird thing. It's a hand. (laughs) In Daniel, the presence of God is very personal. If you remember in Daniel 3, the angel of the Lord, or it's what's called a theophany, a pre-incarnate time. uh, Before Jesus takes on flesh, he shows up. He's with him in the fire. In Daniel 4, a voice from heaven answers Nebuchadnezzar. Here, a hand writes on the wall. In Daniel 6, that same theophany maybe shows up to to shut the mouths of the lions. In Daniel 7, it's one who's like the son of man, one who's like a human, very personal. Anyway, Belshazzar freaks out. 
He collapses. You can just see him like he's had enough wine. He's a little tipsy anyway. He's like, whoa, man, like just drop into the floor. What's happening? We got to get these enchanters, these wise men in here. And he, so he parades in all these learned people who are supposed to understand everything. They have, they have no idea how to interpret what's written on the wall. All the smart guys, all the, 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 the lords who are there, they also, and they have no idea what that means, what's written on the wall. We'll see it in a minute. Verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, let not your thoughts alarm you. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. I dropped out a few verses there just for space. That's probably his mother, the queen mother, the wife of Nabonidus. She comes in, and there's an irony here, especially if Belshazzar is doing this to intentionally mock the God of the Jews. She's like, bring the Jewish guy whose name is Daniel, Daniel, God is my judge. Bring him. So he's fearful and highly anxious, so he's like, okay, let's try Daniel. Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. Now, Daniel's not there. So the party's happening, people are drinking, music's going, the hand writes, everybody stops. Like, what is that writing? Everybody can see it. What's it mean? Nobody knows. Bring people in. Nobody knows. Go get Daniel. So, like, that is an awkward space in a party. Have you been in a party? Like, it just stops? Like, what is happening? So they're waiting. They're guessing. They don't know. They probably started drinking again. I don't know. Daniel comes in, and surely he walks in and looks around and says, you know the enemies are at the gates, right? What is wrong with you? The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. So in contrast to this drunken folly, here comes Daniel in, sober, faithful, clear-headed, uh, and a, with an ability to understand. And now, there's a theme in Daniel, if you've been picking it up. Interpreting dreams, visions, writings, understanding these things. And that theme is something like this. Through God's words to his people, he provides an understanding that the wise, learned, and powerful do not have without those words. Through God's words to his people, his special revelation to his people, God provides an understanding that the most wise, most learned, and most powerful simply do not have without that special revelation. Friends, brothers, sisters, young men, young women, read your scripture. Read these words of God to you. 
As David says, your words, I meditate on them all day long. Your words make me wiser than my adversaries, wiser than my contemporaries. Even if you are not smarter, you may be wiser. You may not know as much. Your IQ might not be as high. You might not have as much esteem. But God's word provides an understanding about life that the most wise, learned, and powerful do not, indeed cannot have without these words. Books about Scripture are good. Christian books are good sometimes. This book is unmatched. It's unmatched, and we we have unmatched access to it in our culture. Teach these words to your children. Teach these words to each other. They make us wise. Here in Daniel, we see a, a sober faithfulness marked by several things. I just want to pull out a couple. First, it's marked by patience. That may not be evident to you, but Daniel is 15 years old about what he's carried off into captivity. That's chapter one. That's the, I'm, we're not going to eat from the king's table. Two other events that we know of in the narrative, interactions happen with Daniel in the next 40 years. He interprets the vision of the statue and interprets the vision of the tree. That's in the next 40 years. It's been at least 25 years since Nebuchadnezzar has died. That, this means Daniel is close to 80 years old right now. Here's the reality of how God works. It's good news, it's challenging news, I don't know. It's, it's just the reality. We do not know when God will use past faithfulness for future good. We don't know when he will use past faithfulness for future good. We don't know how long it takes seeds that are planted in faith and love to germinate. God is committed to using the love and faithfulness of his people. God's committed to losing your love and faithfulness. He just does it much more patiently than we like him to do it. It takes a while. Before this moment, I assume Daniel thought he, would, he was retired. It had been 25 years. Several administrations had come and gone. He hadn't done anything. He was 80. I don't know if you picture Daniel being 80. Not that that necessarily means you're frail, but he wasn't this young strapping lad that he was in the first chapter. Uh, he's patient. Mike prayed for families who have children who are not walking with Jesus. It's painful, but I want to tell you this, guys. The story is long. God is a faithful, pursuing, covenant God. You may not see the fruit of that faithfulness until you're 80. Or until they're 80 and you see it from the next room. But God is patient in his faithfulness. And he equips us to be as well. Let's, let, let's be faithful, let's love well, and leave the fruitfulness and the timing of that to the Lord. Right? Let's sow in hope. Sober faithfulness is marked by patience, it's marked by distinctiveness. Uh, Notice that Daniel here is not called what the Babylonians called him, Belteshazzar. That was his new name. That was his legal name, Belteshazzar. He got renamed as a kid. They didn't want a name that reminded them of the God of where he came from, Daniel, God is my judge. 
But here the, the queen mother calls him Daniel. He is distinctly known by his Hebrew name. That means he lived his life in some way as a distinct follower of the Lord. He did good work, we know that. He served an empire he disagreed with, we know that. And he always did it with a distinctiveness about him. I lament leaving this out, but verse 12, the queen mother says, he has an excellent spirit about him. I don't know, he's this weird follower of Yahweh. I don't really understand it, but there's an excellence about him that is intriguing to me. May that be said about us by people who are far from Christ. Uh, The good news for us is that Jesus makes himself available to us on a daily basis that we may walk with him and be distinctively Christ in every situation in our life. It's marked by distinctiveness. It's marked by freedom. Belshazzar said, I'll give you finery. I'll give you money. I'll make you third in command in the kingdom. Now, that probably didn't mean third in, it probably meant like in the third tier. That's another way to say it. Uh, my wife works for Community Health Network. They have a a vice president. If you're a vice president, you think, oh, that's number two in command. There's seven vice presidents. So like, this is like the third level probably. It's, It's an honor. We'll give you money. And Daniel says, keep it. I don't want your money. I don't need your money. I'm not gonna serve you because you give me the things you value. Uh, The reality is, I think, to be faithfully, to serve a fragile culture faithfully, we are required not to value the things that it values. If we value the currency of our world, the popularity, the money, and the power, it means we are always for sale. If you value the currency of this world, it's just a matter of much, it's just a matter of the bargaining price. You will be for sale. I will be for sale. If, however, in the gospel we see, you know, in Jesus we have one who protects us, who provides for us, who defends us, who rejoices over us. We have the popularity, the money, the power. It's always, it's in Christ. We are free now to love our neighbors well to serve them freely without being manipulated, whether it's intentional or not, by the currency that they value. Daniel responds in verse 18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father, or forefather, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty, and because of the greatness that he gave him, all people's nations and language trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive, whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spear was hardened so that he dealt dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. This is not a new story to Belshazzar. Verse 22, And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. You knew this. This you have, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have raised the gods of... Praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and in whose are all your ways you have not honored. Worldly power is marked by a fragility of forgetfulness, or we might say unteachableness. Here's the accusation. Belshazzar, you knew all this. You know the story. 
That's probably why you use the utensils. You knew the story of this God bringing down your forefather, and you thought you were stronger. You knew the story, and you have not humbled your heart even though you knew it. You know you're accountable to God, and you are arrogant. You know the history, and you did the same thing. You repeated the sins of your forefathers. Can I tell you what I think is some of the best news about the gospel? Let me just read it to you. The companion book to Daniel in the New Testament is 1 Peter. You may know this. Conduct yourselves with reverence throughout your time in exile. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with imperishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You were ransomed, redeemed from the futile ways of your ancestors. Some of you had great folks. Some of you didn't. Some of your grandparents were terrible people. None of that matters. If you're in Christ, you have been ransomed from the futile ways of your forefathers. I'm deeply thankful for that in my family. I'm deeply thankful for that for my children because there are futile ways of me from which they need to be ransomed. I'm not even sure what I passed on to them that messed them up. But I know this. In Christ, they are redeemed from that. They need not repeat the folly of their fathers or their father, and neither do you. Now, I know that uh, it's, it's hard. Like that family tree, it feels like it's tracking us down sometimes. But it's not. It's not. You've been ransomed. Not with, not with things have, that have a, a finite value like silver or gold, but with an infinitely precious, valuable blood of Christ. You're free. Belshazzar wasn't. He said, you've lifted up yourself against the Lord. Prideful. You've not honored God. You mistook his patience for a lack of accountability. That's folly. Prideful. You feel superior. Pride. We talked about this group pride, right? This lifting up yourself like you are greater. We are greater. Pride is a source of nationalism, racism, tribalism, denominationalism. We are better. Any kind of groupism there is is simply saying we are lifted up. And Daniel's saying, Belshazzar, this is destruction to you. Verse 24. Catch the connection, though. Uh, at the end of verse 23, the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored, verse 24, then from his presence the hand was sent. And this was the writing that was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. And here's what was written that they didn't understand. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. So those are four words in Aramaic. This is the interpretation of the manner. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. 
Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and the proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. Big deal. It lasts for 10 minutes. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Worldly power finally is marked by the fragility of the future. I said last week, there is an expiration date on every kingdom of man. Here the writing is on the wall. Why weren't other people ready, able to read it? We don't know. It would have been written in all consonants, as that language was, no vowels. So is it just, you know, like the word, like the, the C and R. C and R. What's that word? It could be car. It could be care. Who knows? It, mene, tackle, parson. could be heteronyms. Those are words that have two meanings that are the same, like the word T-E-A-R-S could be weeping or pulling apart. So the heteronym. Um, dove. Dove, spelled the same. We're not, we're not sure why they couldn't interpret him. Maybe they're just chicken to say what it meant. I don't know. Here's Daniel gives the interpretation. Mene. You've been counted. Now it's twice, right? So it's carefully examined. It's like the whole measure twice, cut once. You've been measured clearly. Tackle. You've been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Belshazzar, your kingdom. Typically, the, the vision there is like weighing the scales of justice with balanced scales, so justice on one side should weigh you out. It's like you are, have so little justice, it's like nothing's on the scales. You've been weighed and found wanting. And then Parson, or uh, Paris. Paris is the singular form of Parson. Just that's what it is. It's the same word, just a singular form. But also, it's very close to the word Paras, which is Persian in Aramaic just for the nerds out there, which is the ones the kingdom is being given to. But the uh, parson, uh, it means divided. Your kingdom is not given away to the enemies who are at the gates. Herodotus, the Greek uh, uh, historian, says that the Persians found a way into Babylon through the under, uh, undercity water system. We don't know if that's true or not. They found a way in some way. We know that because the kingdom fell. Because all kingdoms fall. That kingdom, this kingdom, the next one, all kingdoms fall. The days of the United States of America have been numbered, weighed, and divided. Been given away. The expiration date hasn't happened yet, so far as I know, but the day's not over. We don't know. I'm not saying this as some anti-patriotic trope, just that we are not first part of this kingdom. And that is what we must, that is the vision we must adopt. It allows us to serve with integrity, with faithfulness, even with humility and a little compassion. But we, we live in a culture that is fragile. And we are called to see the, with eyes that see that fragility and know that we are part of a kingdom that cannot be destroyed and will not pass away. We're called to see clearly and serve faithfully empowered by God to serve in this way, like Daniel, and Daniel is a good example to us. I don't want to fail to say Daniel's a good example, but that's not all he is. He's more than that. He's a sign that there is, in fact, a true and better Daniel that has come and that has served. He has served better 
and even more faithfully and more patiently and more sacrificially, and he has served you and he has served me, and he empowers us to walk with him and serve and love faithfully in this culture, even if it's fragile, even if it's a negative world, whatever. He gave himself for us that we may stand faithfully and lovingly, that we may love one another as a body of Christ, that we may stand together, that sometimes we may stand by ourselves but never stand alone and always stand in deep, confident joy. It strikes me here as we go to the table. I didn't put this in here. Uh, probably with men's retreat for the last two days, so I wasn't thinking about the sermon until this morning, but it strikes me that wasn't thinking about the conclusion of the sermon until this morning. Um, Belshazzar is trying to do for himself what only the Lord can do and what the Lord offers to do lavishly. If you think about it, the enemies are surrounding the city, and you have this party with overflowing cups and a lot of joy. He's trying, and he's trying to prepare a table for himself in the presence of his enemies, which is the very thing the Lord tells us, you don't have to do, you can't do, and I love to do. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though the enemies are surrounding even though there's a lot of hopelessness in my life, a lot of despair, and I have to have a lot of patience. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, you comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows, and surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And here is the picture of that overflowing cup and the table prepared for you. In a culture that may like you, may not like you, it doesn't really matter. It's fragile and passing away. And this empowers us to stand firm and stand in love right where we are. If you're in Christ, this table is opened to you to strengthen you this week for whatever's in front of you. Let me pray and I'll invite you to the table.